Please remain standing as you are able, and will you follow after me as we follow very likely after the example of Jesus and his disciples who have recited what he came to call the Great Commandment uh, two to three times a day at least. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning is the 22nd uh, chapter of Genesis. It is the story of Abraham and Isaac. We'll look at the first uh, three verses as we start. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, and Abraham replied, here I am. And God said to him, take your son, your only son whom you love, to the region of Moriah, and there sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. So Abraham, early the next morning, loaded his donkeys. He took two servants and Isaac with them. And after he had collected enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. We're about to spend several weeks together talking about uh, the subject of love. So I couldn't think of a better way to introduce that subject than by talking about child sacrifice. Yeah, actually, I could think of a whole lot better ways uh, to do that. But I hope if you'll stick with me for a few minutes this morning, you'll find out why I went in this direction. Because no matter how you come at the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, it is a very hard story to make sense of. It certainly must have been a difficult story for Abraham to make sense of. Here he has waited 25 years for this child and then spent a number of years watching this child grow up. And now he's asked to give back that child. It must have been difficult, if not impossible, to understand. And it's as hard as it was for Abraham. How much harder then for the boy's mother, Sarah? In fact, interestingly, after the story of Abraham and Isaac, and even though, of course, the child is spared and the ram is sacrificed in the thicket, in one of the next verses, we find out that Sarah dies. And the rabbis who studied this a few thousand years ago came to the conclusion that when Abraham came home and told Sarah what he was about to do, she went Sanford and son and had a heart attack. She couldn't believe it. And then, of course, others were worried about Isaac. We'll we'll talk more about him later. But they said, can you imagine being Isaac? I mean, after this event took place, even though it became a non-event, did you ever sleep with both eyes closed again when you were near your father? All sorts of things hard to understand, but especially hard as we come 4,000 years forward from Abraham to us. How do we make sense of a story like this? There's a great preacher and biblical scholar in the 18th and early 19th century named Alexander White, a, a Scottish preacher. And this is the conclusion he came to. He said, when it comes to the story, he said, everything turns dark. I cannot, he said, possibly understand this story. It is a challenge. And remains the challenge, I think, even uh, to this day. I remember uh, when I first walked into a seminary class in the, in the Older Testament, uh, this was one of the first stories we got to because it was, of course, in Genesis. And I remember when the story was brought up, there were several people in the class who immediately protested to the professor that this story amounted to nothing more than divinely sanctioned child abuse, and it shouldn't be in our Bible anyway. 
Well, the professor went on then to give an explanation. I remember this explanation at the time. He said, Israel lived around other people, as you know, including the Canaanites. And the Canaanites did one detestable thing. They would take their children and sacrifice them to their false god in order to ensure uh, fertility for the animals and rain and a good crop. And so his explanation at the time is that this story is told because it became a non-event. And it was a way the Israelites could remind themselves that other people may sacrifice children, but that's not how we do it here. Uh, and in fact, if you read a little bit further in the Older Testament into Second Kings, we actually find, of all things, there is a king of Israel who one day in hopes and desperate attempt to provide his own security will offer his son as a sacrifice to a false god. So even after Abraham, it still happened. But others don't see that as the explanation. They focus in on this. If you remember, the very first verse goes like this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And so the interesting thing is Abraham doesn't know what's coming, but we know what's coming, that it's a test. I don't know if you've ever been watching TV or listening to the radio and that annoying emergency broadcast system comes on. And they always come on by telling you, now this is a test. This is only a test. And it's like the Bible gives us that warning But Abraham doesn't get that warning. And so some scholars believe that what's being tested here is just Abraham's own understanding of this child. Is this child a gift from God? Or is this child something that Abraham earned with Sarah for 25 years of obedience and faithfulness? Now, that may not prove satisfying to you uh, that what is being tested here is whether Abraham understands that life is a gift. But I would point out something I've shared with you before. There was a, a wonderful pastor in our community who spent some time in our community. His name was John Claypool. And before he ever moved here, he lost a child to leukemia. And he said it was this interpretation, which was first offered by a German theologian in the 1930s, that got him out of bed in the morning after the the death of his daughter. He said, I had to remind myself time and again that whatever time we did have that was less than I hoped for was indeed a gift. And he said, that's the only way I could go forward. So maybe, maybe that's helpful. Other people that focus on that it's a test, it's only a test, say that what's being tested here is whether Abraham believes he's in charge or is God in charge. Can God be in charge and ask whatever God wants whenever God wants to do it? So what's being tested is our understanding about whether we are supposed to use God or we are to be of service to God. That's possible. My favorite one came more recently, several years ago, from Eugene Peterson. You may be familiar with him. He wrote the translation of the Bible called The Message. And he said this writing about Abraham. He said, isn't it fascinating that we all want an explanation and Abraham doesn't? He said, isn't that strange? Because when God had said to Abraham, I'm thinking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was like, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. What if there are 50 righteous people there and and he starts haggling with God and and gets down to 10 people. But when it came to his own son, his one and only son, there's no haggling. He just starts out going forward. And Peterson's explanation is that when you look at the Abraham and Isaac story, you have to see it in a long line of stories of God and Abraham, where no matter what Abraham has been asked to do, no matter how difficult things got, it always worked out. In the end. And so Abraham trusting knows that. And we see evidence of that because when Abraham leaves the two servants behind to go climb up the mountain with Isaac, he says, the boy and I will be back. 
There's a sense that he knows. It's a fascinating story, and I have to tell you of all those explanations and the myriad of others that are offered, um, I, don't know, I don't know which is helpful, if any. But I tell you this because I want to tell you something that is interesting to me about this passage. This is the first time in the entire Bible that the word love is used. Can you believe that? 22 chapters into the Bible before we ever find the word love. Take your son, your only son, whom you love and go up to Mount Moriah. And this is really interesting because the way they studied and interpreted the Bible in Jesus' day. It's not necessarily the way we do it today, but, but it is interesting. One of the techniques that the great rabbis used was uh, pioneered, well, at least summarized by a wonderful man who lived before Jesus. His name was Hillel. And just by the Sermon on the Mount, we can deduce that Jesus offered interpreted things in, in a similar manner. But what they would do is they pioneered a practice that, that today we would call reference or reminder. And the deal was this. They would just, because they had the Bible memorized, if you quoted just a sentence from the Bible, it drew up not only that sentence, but the whole story. And so in some ways today, like if I gave you a line from a movie, you would probably know the whole movie. And you could probably get the larger context. Um, uh, let, let me just try a few. My sons all play tennis. Sometimes they would come off the court and the result was not what I wanted. And they would tell me that they, would, that they had tried. And my response to them is, there is no try. Anybody? Can you finish that? From Star Wars. From Yoda. You do or you do not. Now, granted, I wasn't the best parent. But we both knew the movie. Sometimes when things happen around the office or at home, I will, I will say to people, well, I can't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow. We all know where that comes from. And sometimes when the Rangers are having a particular difficult season in baseball, I will remind my fellow fans and friends, there's no crying and... And so you can finish it. You know it. They did the same stuff with the Bible. And one word or sentence would open up an entire larger story. And we see Jesus do this. One day Jesus goes to Jericho, which is um, the, the winter home of very wealthy priests. Because Jerusalem's up in the mountains. It's colder. Uh, Jericho is much warmer. And the priests, quite frankly, they were selfish and out for themselves. So Jesus goes to a man the priest ignores, his name's Zacchaeus, and he tells him, you know, come down from the tree. And they protest that. And Jesus makes a one-sentence response. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. And I remember hearing lots of sermons like, oh, that is a great mission statement. That's the one thing Jesus is about, and I need to write that down and do that. Great. Do that. But know this, that Jesus didn't make that up. That's from Ezekiel 34. Jesus quoted them a sentence to refer them to the entire chapter. And when you go home, look up Ezekiel 34. And basically in it, God is talking about how terrible the priests are in Ezekiel day. How they muddy the water that people are supposed to drink. How they eat the best food and leave the leftovers for their people. It's no wonder folks were ticked off in Jericho when Jesus came rolling through town and called on Zacchaeus. He opened up an entire story for them with just a few words. Okay, so you with me? So a first cousin of this reminder or reference method is called first use, which is to say the first time you come across a phrase or a word in the Bible, 
The story that it's used in is to inform your further use and understanding of that phrase. So, for example, this is the first time that love is found in the Bible. So the story of Abraham and Isaac should always be in the back of our mind when we think about love. Even when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, in the back of his mind is Genesis 22. It doesn't exhaust the interpretation, but it guides it. So here's what I want to do very briefly. If you want to talk about love and ask the question, what is love? I will tell you, you can't answer the story completely without first looking at Genesis 22. And I just want to point out a few things that happen in Genesis 22. Most of you will know the story, but Abraham calls on, um, uh, uh, God calls on Abraham to offer Isaac. He walks up the mountain on a three day, after a three day journey, and of course is prepared to offer Isaac, and God has a ram caught in the thicket. So of course this sacrifice never takes place. And we learn later, of course, that God will make that sacrifice, but will not ask for it from us. Well, there are three things I think jump out at me. One is that if you're going to talk about love, then you're going to have to talk about sacrifice. That if you and I claim to love someone or something and we're not willing to give ourselves for them, put their interests ahead of our own, then we have to rethink whether we really love them or not. If I claim to love someone, but I really only love them for my own benefit, have I really loved in a biblical sense? Or do I claim to love someone or something, but it's just an emotion, and I claim that I love this team or I love this cause, but I never do anything for the team or the cause, do I really love them? Because what we find out is that love is about sacrifice, and, uh, and it's about an action, not just an emotion. So however we think of love, love has to include a willingness to give ourselves for other people. I'm not saying we have to be perfect at it. I'm just saying it ought, if it's really love, it ought to be reflected in that we're willing to give ourselves for another. And what's interesting to me is there's another phrase that's found for the first time in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son. Do you think we're ever going to run into that verse again in the whole Bible? We'll see it. And won't we see it in the Gospel of John in context with sacrifice again? So I think love involves sacrifice. It's not just saying I love you, but do I demonstrate it with my action? Second thing is that to me, love is always going to be a journey. That, you know, for three days they're marching toward this mountain and nobody really knows how it's all going to turn out. But they march together. It tells me that love is something that involves the long haul. That we, if we love each other, we're in it for the long haul. And at any one moment, things may not be great, but we keep journeying together. Uh, there are moments on the journey that are difficult when we can't see the hill or what's going to be on the top of the hill or how it's going to come out, but we still walk together. It's this three-day journey, and then it, like being three days in the tomb. We don't really know until it happens how it all comes out, but there we are. I, I'm reminded of the great uh, children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. Do you remember that? Did you ever read it to your kids? Marjorie Williams. And so the, the, the skin horse is talking to the Velveteen Rabbit about how you become real. And he said, you know, it doesn't happen instantly. It happens over time. And by the time that you're real, all of your fur has been rubbed off, your eyes have popped out, and your joints are loose. And then you become real. And I would say biblically, then you're looking at love. When you're in it for that kind of journey, 
for three days, how long must have those three days have seemed to them? Um, this past Sunday wasn't anything near as tragic, but it was an interesting journey. My wife and I uh, often will go on a, about a four and a half mile uh, round trip, 4.6 mile round trip. We'll leave our house, walk over to Tobin Park, walk a trail, come back. Which most days works out great. Except early on the way back, a little less than two miles from home, I got stung, I guess, by a bee right under my eye. Um, it hurt. I'm a little bit, I'm a whiner, but it hurt. And then my, I, my face began to swell and I could see the stinger sticking out of my eye. Well, we couldn't hitch a ride with anybody. There we were on the trail. So we journeyed home. And I wondered, was my eye going to be black? What was going to happen? How does this come out? And we just had to keep walking. And now fortunately, like every good right-thinking American, we didn't do anything until we Googled it first. And then my wife was able to remove it. But sometimes love feels like that. Yeah, you just, you're on the journey and, you know, you wish you'd get there, but all you can do is just take another step. There's no shortcut. There's nobody to pick me up in a car and take me home. We just had to walk through it. And some, Abraham and Isaac had to do it. Sometimes we have to do that. But, and this is a big but, but we also learn at the end of the story, Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, and of course a ram is provided by God. We learn that in love, if we stick with it, that love eventually prevails. That God will find a way, no matter how difficult the situation may seem. I think it was Paul that said it, didn't he? He said there are three really great things, faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's what's going to hang in there. That's what's going to get the last word, whether we see it or understand it at the time or not. I showed the children this at the 830 uh, service. Anybody know what this is? Okay, here's a hand. I have a cat. Anybody? I have an ill cat. So twice a day in the morning, uh, I hold the cat. My wife loads up. This is a pill pusher for a cat. And she tries to get it as far back in there as she can. Bam. And we probably, we wash it down with some water. Uh, two in the morning, two in the evening. I don't think the cat likes it. I don't think he believes deep in his heart that we're there to help him. I don't think he thinks we love him. But we know. We have a vision of how this ends. We see what he can't see. We understand what he cannot yet understand. And that's how love works. For all that we don't know. We keep sacrificing, we stay together, we work it out, we keep walking, knowing that in the end, love prevails. The Bible tells us that God is love, love will prevail.